When the framers of the Declaration of Independence came together in the spring of 1776, they came together knowing that the rule of Great Britain could not continue. But how to get independence? Well, that meant a lot of different agendas. Ultimately, as June turned to July, those agendas became singular in focus. 56 delegates, 13 colonies, putting their personal interests aside for the better of all. And so America was born. A nation built on political notions and ideology, for sure. But also at its roots, a nation built on selflessness and what's best for the whole. Civilians who believe there are causes bigger than the individual. Reasons to fight that are not self-benefiting. Selfless service by farmers, clerks, tradesmen, individuals. Now here we are, 244 years later, and our community has gone through a four-month period unparalleled in its history. And again, the idea of selflessness, sacrificing for others, compassion for your fellow man and woman. What better way then to celebrate Independence Day than to tell the story of selfless Upper Cumberland residents Residents who served in ways large and small, without regard to personal risk, with no regard for personal acclaim, just giving of themselves. Through the tornado, through COVID, serving, giving, caring. This is their story. Nurses, teachers, First responders, public works teams, volunteers, the home of the brave. We begin on the morning of March 3rd, Putnam County Emergency Dispatch. I'm Kayla Bain, a 911 dispatcher. When did your shift start? 8 p.m. We were getting prepared, but we didn't know how bad it would be, obviously. When was the first call? I wanted to say like 152, somewhere along in there, because the, the tornado hit around 147. You remember that call? I do, because it was my subdivision. <laughs> yeah, it was the back of my subdivision. They said we need somebody to Charlton Square because the subdivision is flattened. That was were their exact words. It was very hard because my parents were there. So obviously I was like, you know, trying to remain calm because I have a job to do, but also that's my parents and I want to make sure that they were okay. So I, uh, I mean, we went ahead and dispatched everybody out and I was, I was uh, EMS that night. Debbie was phones and David was fire and rescue. It didn't stop. It didn't stop at least for an hour and a half of strict calls. Those were just calls. And in between, you know, me and David were trying to dispatch fire and rescue, EMS, you know, anybody that would come to those, uh, to those neighborhoods. In your role as a dispatcher, you're obviously trying to get help to people as quickly as you can. Is there also that sense of trying to be a calm voice to that person? Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know how Debbie did it, 
because I was, I mean, I mean, because she lived over there too. She lived, you know, one street over, so she didn't know if her house was okay either. Yeah, we were, and then David's fiance was trying to make it to here to get to take cover, and so she got caught at the gas station. So we were all like freaking out, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it, it was it was hard to focus. They they tell us to be prepared for the worst, and that was the worst. <laughs> that was for sure the worst. Major Greg Quirker, Putnam County Sheriff's Department. When the call came in, uh, one of our sergeants was headed west on 70, and he notified dispatch what he had driven up on. And actually, weird enough, I remember I was at Highway 70 at the 290 exit. Uh, responded from there, contacted uh, Sheriff Ferris while I was en route. He'd done been notified by one of his daughters uh, who had a friend down there who'd been affected by the tornado and he was in route also and then uh, from there our dispatchers started with the sheriff first announced an all call every employee to proceed into work and uh, our response time was just impressive to see how quick the employees responded my first stop was at a in charlton square and a fireman uh, uh, Mike Brown, he and his wife, who's a nurse, had set up a uh, basically a triage. They had about 30 or 40 people in their home. Their home wasn't torn down completely, and they were giving aid uh, to people. They had a, a lady, a nurse that I actually picked up. Uh, she uh, started, got in the car with me. It was a nurse by the name of Amy Jenkins. She got in the car with me. And started as we left Charlton Court. We they rendered aid to all these people at Mr. Brown's home, and then we started traveling around. And she was just awesome to help aid people and victims we were finding throughout the western part of the county. There, the devastation uh, was more severe, I guess, when you get up around McBroom Chapel on Hensley Drive. Um, I ran into. Uh, uh, so a group of Cookville City officers uh, who were just awesome, Tammy Gooseby, uh, Heather Marshall, uh, Brandon Cooper, Justin Long, Jamie McCurry. Those Cookville City officers were done on the ground digging through rubble, and uh, they were finding victims as well as deceased. And it was, uh, it was a very emotional morning. But everyone in that group and everyone else uh, pulled together. We were emotional at times, but we still did our job in trying to help people. Lieutenant Tony Branch, Putnam County Sheriff's Office. So I was at home and I live west of Baxter and I didn't have any cell phone. It had knocked out all of our cell phone down west of Baxter. And, and I went and radioed into dispatch and they told me, yeah, it hit. And they, they didn't know anything yet, but knew it hit. So I, I responded, and I was probably there within 20 to 30 minutes. I wasn't there long. Sheriff Ferris called and asked me to kind of start heading things up and directing people where to go because we were starting to realize at that point we still didn't have a clue, like Major Wicker said, till it got daylight how widespread it was. But when we started getting reports from all these different areas, we knew at that point that it was a pretty significant area that we were going to cover. So we were just trying to keep track of everybody and send our resources where they needed to be the most and um, and that was a biggie keeping track of everybody because everybody was showing up 
Cumberland County, they had sent six deputies down that showed up within the hour to help us on that night. And uh, we were we were set up in just a little temporary vehicle on the side of the road, and every two or three minutes, people were knocking on the door wanting to know what they could do to help. And it was very sad, but it was also, as it went on, kind of heartwarming to see the community actually come together like it did because that, that was unreal. It was It was great. So, from two to let's say six a.m., is that all just kind of a blur? Yes, sir. Yes, there was. I'm, I don't want to speak for these guys, but I think from two to six, there was so much going on that you really, it was just. I don't want to say chaos because it was controlled at some point that we could, but there was a lot that we were processing and trying to figure out as we went. Lieutenant Rebecca Wright with the Putnam County Sheriff's Office. Um, on my way, I had been given information that we had had a, a co-worker who had lost a child. And immediately, um, that just really broke my heart uh, on my way down. So I knew that it was going to be bad when I got here. Um, and I started praying and asking God to, you know, just ease the pain of those who have already lost people. And please just let us find as many as we could in good shape or at least alive and when i got here i immediately contacted lieutenant branch and i went to herald court which is where one of our employees had lived that had lost the child and that the, the devastation in that area was just it really um really blew my mind at, at how quickly those things happened and i'll never in my life ever take a tornado for granted ever um i was there for a few hours and then I got sent to Echo Valley for search and recovery, and at that point, um, there was one name that kind of stuck in our minds and, that we were looking for, which was Hattie Collins, and, and I know these guys remember that because Hattie was two or three years old, and we were really looking for Hattie. She was one of the last people that we knew was missing we couldn't find, and we got there, and there was a, the creek bed was just full of debris, and, you know, in my mind, I was like, they had already recovered a body just as I had arrived, and I'm thinking, as much debris in that creek, there's likely to be more. And so that's when we started um, getting heavy equipment in there from just people in the community, people just showing up. There was um, public service workers from the city and the county. There was rescue squad. There was firemen. There were state troopers. There was agencies from everywhere as well as the community, and we just started you know using the heavy equipment to lift debris out and that's when we found the victim that really touched my heart the most which was harlan marsh and he was five so and um you know it was just a very surreal moment it made me hug my babies that much harder that morning and then um i stayed i just couldn't leave i couldn't leave that afternoon and i probably got home i don't know 12 o'clock that night 11 o'clock and i wanted to stay and meet his family and Really and truly, it helped me probably more than it helped them um, just to hear a little bit about who he was and just to know that he was loved and cared for, uh, which he was very much. And and um, I'll never forget that little fellow. He'll always keep me grounded. Every, every victim I've ever came across in my career over 25 years always keeps me grounded, and he'll be the one in my heart that will always keep me grounded here in Putnam County and remember why I do what I do. Um, went home that night and just prayed you know that the victims that we recovered that were still alive that that we would be able to rejoice with them as they recovered and and luckily we had some pretty good recovery stories from the, the Monnet family their little girl she 
made a full recovery, and I'm so thankful for that. So, I recall seeing one of our deputies, uh, Josh Hull, walking down a roadway carrying a man. He had recovered. Uh, a guy by the name of John Edgerton, Jared Smith, some of these guys start showing up with heavy equipment. A uh, gentleman from White County, how he got the information so quick, uh, Kevin Moyer, he shows up and uh, asks if he can help. I assuming just he was going to be by himself, and an hour or better, a little better than an hour, he shows up with approximately 35 men in heavy equipment. There's so many victims, and you're trying to figure out who you need to help first, but everybody needed help first. And so, in my mind, that's kind of what stuck out for me, like what tools do I have in my tool belt that I can help these people and help them the most. And really and truly with all these people, like I had a, a heavy equipment crew call me every day, every every few hours, where do you need me to go? And there was times I just didn't really know where to tell them to go. People are showing up, you're, you're trying to direct them and, and the chaoticness is you're going down through their flipping boards over roofs over uh honestly in your mind the biggest thing that i'm sure both lieutenants will relate with me is you're not wanting to find another body but on the same token i i think about one particular body we found it was a, a gentleman in front of a truck i knew the truck and i knew the owner of the truck and when we looked at this body uh we had ran the tag on this truck thinking it was him. I knew the gentleman that the truck belonged to. The body we found was not him. And I told my co-workers and other first responders, I said, that's not that man's truck. So you went through a process. Here you are with a body trying to identify who this is. And, of course, then directly across from it, another body had been found. It was just hard to process sometimes. Not only were we out trying to look for victims, but we also had to secure the area, too, because there's still people that want to come in and cause harm, even though this has happened, and, and steal their possessions and all their stuff laying. I mean, there's no nothing securing their stuff, their houses. Just, so we kind of, everybody there, that was our main goal was, well, number one, we wanted to get the victims, but once we were kind of satisfied that, you know, we had finished our searches, we... We wanted to make sure that we kept them safe by making sure their possessions stayed safe. And we we ran that for quite a while, trying to, uh, you know, if they wanted to come in and steal, they were going to have to come through us. You know, one of our lieutenants, uh, Sheriff Ferris, had directed him to uh, be at the morgue. Uh, this man spent several days over there with these families. And as Lieutenant Wright said also, uh, Lieutenant Branks, a lot of us attended some of these funerals for the mere fact of what she said. We want them to know that we do care. And, and I happened to be with uh, one, the gentleman, Lieutenant Rick Baker, who was at the morgue at the Cookville Hospital and uh, was in line with him, visitation. And I saw a fam family, family get up and come up and start just hugging on this man over the way he had helped them during the identifying of the body and, and some things. Uh, you know, there was so many, again, people who was not ever probably thought of or recognized. Our dispatchers in a two-hour span received 
approximately 150 calls. Uh, we didn't, there was four dispatchers came in. At that particular time, we only had two. They were in there, Sergeant Misty Claiborne. She didn't even have to call with the dispatchers. Again, people from everywhere was helping. We had some guys on the ground, and Major Wicker mentioned earlier, Sergeant Cobble, his shift was working. Um, they'd come on at 6 p.m. the night prior to this happening. About 11, 30, 12 o'clock that morning, or afternoon at 12, I had to physically tell him to take his shift home. They weren't going home, I had to, because we had to start rotating people in to get breaks, because we're not going to do anybody no good if we're all exhausted. If you truly care about people and you have the ability to talk to people, that that, that might be your role. And for me, after things kind of calmed down and it became um, more of a controlling and security of property, you know, all the bodies and um, victims had been recovered, then that became my role is to coordinate with some of these families who still needed services, who still needed people to help them recover their properties, and for people who had lost. We, we do have a job that we do as law enforcement, but we're still human. We have emotions, and I think a lot of us who have families uh, related numerous times thinking how blessed we were that we weren't the victims. At the end of the day when everybody's coming together like that, it has to make you proud. Because if it hadn't been for people coming together like they did, it would have been a lot worse. So it makes you proud because it, it kind of restores your faith in the good of people. So very proud. Several homeowners along Highway 70 said during the first hours of daylight that Tuesday, the first people they saw, athletes from Upperman High School. The familiar colors, the bees on the pullovers and jackets, a welcome sight. Well, I mean, anytime a traumatic event like this hits a community, it's, it's a, a very uh, painful recovery process. Upperman principal Billy Stepp. You're not going to go through an event like this. The community's not going to go through an event like this alone. Everybody kind of pulled together, and and uh, that's with anything that I've experienced here in Putnam County, in the Upper Cumberland. There's just a lot of great people, and it's a wonderful place to live because of that. I'm Lyle Daniels. I'm with the Upperman uh, Soccer Program. It started with we had several athletes that were affected, um, you know, in the different neighborhoods that uh, took the direct hits. Uh, from all sports, we had uh, a lot of athletes that were there and impacted, and without a doubt, they were the first on the scene. And uh, if you've been around our athletes or students, either one, uh, for any period of time, you'll you'll know that they feel like a family, and they look out for each other, and they're willing to go and do whatever. Um, I know in one particular neighborhood, both of my assistant coaches lived there, and they were both impacted. As soon as it happened, all you want to do is, what can I do to help? And that was uh, one of the first couple of messages uh, that went place that morning uh, between me and uh, Amanda Stacy, who was uh, our assistant coach down there. And, you know, what what do you need? What what can we do to uh, jump on this and help, help the people in our community? Wes Shanks, agriculture teacher, baseball coach, and FFA advisor. I couldn't get in contact with my players or the students. You know, we've got these uh, – Technologies now where we can contact them, the phone systems weren't working well. So the unknown of being able to talk to them made me scared. The ones I did get in contact to, 
they were already contacting me. Gosh, it was five, six in the morning. Hey, let's set up a meeting. So I had uh, a, a group meeting at school. We'll all meet there and we'll go drive to where we need to drive and just go help uh, see where we're needed. Uh, so I had uh, several baseball players show up, FFA members, other members of the school system. We probably had 20 to 30 students just show up. And uh, that was a portion of what I didn't realize at the time that we actually had a baseball player's house was affected by that, and the rest of my ball team was already there. So it was just the initiative of the boys for the baseball team and some of the other students in, on our school, just that initiative of them putting that foot forward first to just help because it's the right thing to do. Dana Stewart, I'm the clinic nurse at, at the high school. I think a lot of the kids that weren't even involved in sports they just knew the kids in general. They were just already out there. They didn't have to be associated with a sports group. They were out there just pitching in. Their parents were pitching in. Everybody just wanted to do something. They didn't know what to do, so they would just go. And if people were pulling out debris from houses already on that first day, those kids was in there grabbing it, pulling it out. Do you need to keep this? What do we need to do with this? They just wanted to be a part of something also. But for you as coaches, and you preach teamwork, 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 I mean, that has to inspire you that they kind of did it on their own. Without a doubt. Um, but I think it goes back to that relationship they, that they have, not only on the athletic field, but in the school itself. And, uh, you know, these kids, they, they see each other every day, and uh, they got some really good friends, and they look out for each other. As coaches, we're all the time trying to do, you know, team-building events. You know, if it's in practices, game simulations, this was a team-building event. It was just – very un, un, unfortunate situation, but the guys I can remember walking out with you know several of our team members and seeing a, a cluster of black sweatshirts, black t-shirts, and it was Coach Lyle and all the soccer boys, and we kind of did the old wave at you guys, you know, good to see you, what's going on? It's kind of like it was at the school day because we'd see these kids every day anyway, except for this was just an unforeseen circumstance, and everybody was. Hard at work, you know. There was a lot that day after. There was so much debris, and uh, there was a lot of machinery out there. But what they really needed was some elbow grease. Some some young kids, which was our age group in the high school, and every kid had something in their hands, moving it, following directions. I mean, being uh, good stewards of Upper Bend High School. Just looking around at all the people that had conveyed on these neighborhoods to pull together and do whatever they could for people they had no idea who they were uh, it was truly inspiring uh, that's that's what i took out of it i'll tell you this example it stuck out to me kind of it hit me in the heart so our our home opener was away at clay county and with everything leading up to it it was just to get the kids back in practice and get that first game uh, that's what they wanted to do you know get back to normalcy uh we're warming up. Next thing you know, the national anthem's getting ready to come on, and this girl comes on the intercom and goes through and gives out a prayer and says, you know, we're thinking about you guys. And the words that she spoke were just, it was uplifting, and it was sincere. As I walked uh, after the game, we're heading back to the team bus, and I passed the concession stand and then walked back. Just had to go say something, you know, give my appreciation for what this lady said and asked who was the one that said that. And it was a high school uh, teenager. You know, we needed that. You know, our community needs that. And just the, the thoughts and prayers, everybody from us around needed those thoughts and prayers. And it was just a 
it was a warm moment knowing that areas in the Upper Cumberland were just as thoughtful and uh, appreciative of, of everything. Through the efforts of thousands of volunteers, including those Upperman students, that first week of March ended with hope for some return to normalcy. Then came March 12th, when the Upper Cumberland and the state of Tennessee entered a state of emergency, COVID-19, the greatest public health crisis in a century. The public health departments across the region became the epicenter, testing thousands of people. I'm Jacob Winton with the Tennessee Army National Guard. I am Melissa Vinson, and I'm with the Putnam County Health Department. Melissa, can you imagine, have you even sat down to think how many COVID tests you've given? No. (laughs) I know it is a lot. A lot. Um, Probably in the thousands. Um, I think the biggest thing is everyone thinks that it's going to be painful, and so we really try to to sell at the beginning that it's not, and that it's, uh, it's just a nasal swab, just like anything else, and... You know, once you explain it to them, you know, the process of what's going to happen, that that settles their nerves. And and then after that, it's it's good from there. They they settle down and they're able to have the test and and move on. So are people scared? Um, They are, you know, because as soon as they see people in the car in front of them and they're like, oh, my goodness, they're going to do that to me. You know, so you do have to put those fears aside. But, you know, once these guys, um, the National Guard, they have been such a tremendous help here you know they are very courteous and polite to the to the patients that are coming through to be tested and putting those fears at ease for them is this what you signed up for i signed up definitely to help my community and my state and my country so any chance that i get to do that absolutely this is this is exactly what i signed up for um it's public health you know with public health these are things that we deal with on a a day-to-day basis so you know absolutely this is just another day at work while some swabbed others sewed so i first uh talked to some ladies see if they'd be willing to help make masks and yeah they would Christina Swallows is an Overton County Ag Extension agent. And so then I went forth and and called the hospital in Livingston and called several doctor's offices there and checked with them to see if they were interested. And they were a little bit hesitant at first because uh, the cloth masks are not regulated. And so therefore, you know, um, it's not what their norm is. But then they called me back and said, yes, we do want them because we don't we don't have that many masks and this will be our backup. And so far, they haven't had to use the masks. There's been a few of uh, the personnel that have used masks, the uh, cloth mask, but otherwise they're using their regular uh, surgical mask or uh, in 1995s. And so um, from there, it went to um, 911. Our local EMS, uh, I talked to Chris Massingale, and he says, oh, yes. He says, we need uh, 200 or, you know, automatically. And and I'm like, Chris, you don't know what you're asking for. Of course, I was made, we're, the ladies were already making uh, over 150 for a hospital and doctor's offices and such. And so uh, Chris jumped on board, and he says, oh, yeah, I want them. And he says, and I want them redesigned. He says, I want them to have a pocket in them so that we can take filters and put in and out. 
So uh, we had to redesign the mask for him and his group. And so, and I thought, man, this is going to be too much for these ladies because, you know, they're already spending hours making these masks. So I put it on Facebook and I put it in the paper. Uh, I recreated the the uh, graphs and instructions for their new mask. And so they just started swarming in. So, uh, but we had a lot of volunteers other than the FC ladies to step in and uh, take over where, I won't say they stopped because they didn't, they're still making masks, but uh, where they slowed down. So it's been a, a good project for all, I think. Now, I heard stories that, for example, that uh, some of the women had, uh, they were quilters and then used quilting pieces and that sort of thing. Is there truth to that? There is truth to that. Matter of fact, I had a lady come in to my office and uh, she showed me a mask that she had made. She had a square. She said, these are some squares that I had left over from a quilt that I didn't use. And so she made mask of uh, a block, of quilting block. And so it was a really beautiful uh, mask. And so you have all kinds of designs and all shapes and sizes. So they have a lot of pride and a lot of they a lot of love for the people who were serving. They wanted to protect those individuals that were in the hospitals, in the doctor's offices, or seeing these patients with possibly this COVID and don't even know it if they're visiting them or not. And so they wanted to be there to protect them and do their little part. Protecting people protecting those who came to the hospital sick with COVID-19. It, it is it is unlike anything we've ever seen. It is almost eerie walking into work every day. Cookville Regionals, Lindsay Verbal. There's no visitors. Um, it, the patients have no really advocates other than us. Um, it is unlike anything we've ever seen. It, it is so strange, and the patients rely on us now more than they ever have because we are their voice, we're their health care worker, we're, we're everything for them, especially on the COVID unit. Um, we, we deliver meals, we do, you know, physical therapy with them, we're the medicine person for them, we, you know, help them with their daily um, hygiene care. So we are everything to them, whereas before we were just one piece of the whole um, part of the healthcare system. We're everything. Caring is so much a part of being a nurse. Mm-hmm. More so now since you also are kind of their family? Yes, absolutely more so. They they don't have any contact with the outside world unless we provide that for them, like with the um, FaceTime on the iPad. So, I mean, really, we're it. That We're the only person that they see, and we are in full gear. So they really only see our eyeballs. That's the only part. Sometimes, you know, they have no idea what we look like underneath those suits. And so we really have to step up our game more than we ever have um, to be caring for them and um, it's just the way that the nurses that I have worked with have stepped up is unlike anything I've ever seen before. When you say full gear, what do you mean? 
so we have on um, the little yellow gowns that make us kind of look like Big Bird. Um, we have on two pairs of gloves. We have on shoe coverings. We have a um, N95 mask on, which is what some people call respirators in the community. Then we have a yellow surgical mask over top of that. We have a face shield over top of that or goggles and then also hair covering. So we are really covered from head to toe before we walk in a room. Have you been able to stop and think about just how severe a virus this is? Or do you just, are you so involved in everything day to day that you can't think? When this first started, if you, when you asked us, were we scared? Oh, of course. I mean, we were terrified. Um, We were watching the same news that everybody else was and seeing the um, circumstances in New York and what the nurses were going through there. So, of course, I mean, we we were scared to death. And then we really had to come together as a team. And every morning we started having prayer meetings and talking about we have to step up now more than we ever have. And um, if we can't be peace and if we don't have peace in our hearts, we cannot provide peace to any patient. So we had to rely on each other. We had to come together. And um, we just we have to take it one day at a time, one patient at a time. And that that's all we can do. And everybody has just went above and beyond. I can't brag enough about the way the nurses have taken on the care of patients right now. Because you're also concerned about your family and friends. Of course. We have nurses who are immunocompromised themselves. We have older nurses. We have nurses with who have sick children. And um, we've had nurses who've stepped in and volunteered to take extra patients so that there's those other nurses don't have to. Um, it, we've just been it, – it's more than coworkers. It is a family. Was that there before, but it has been just – Increased tenfold. Since <laughs> I this heard happened. someone say when the tornado happened that they had um, their faith in humanity had been restored from the way that people reacted during the tornado. And I will say that sense of um, that nurses get sometimes of burnout or whatever. If it was there before, it's not now because we've had to step up and really take care of each other. We have watched people who are normally healthy, young individuals who work and mothers who take care of children, and they are really struggling to even breathe on a day-to-day basis, and you don't know if they're going to even survive the day or the night. Um, It is scary. I'm a mother myself. I have young children, so just seeing the way that they struggle and all they're worried about is what's going to happen to their children. And so for me, that has been the biggest struggle, is watching these, mo- these young mothers struggle who know that they, they have to do better because they have children who depend on them. Have you felt love and support from the community? Oh my gosh, overwhelmingly support. We've had um, churches to donate masks. We've had um, companies, um, cabinet companies and other things to make ear savers for our masks um, so that our ears don't get sore. There's been restaurants who have donated meals, you know, for us during the day. It is, I am so proud to live in this community. When it's all said and done, how has it changed you? Oh, I I will forever be changed. Um I am I have I told someone in the crisis debriefing I'm a much better mother. I'm a much better friend because days are not promised to us. 
we can only um, do the best that we can every single day, but tomorrow is not an assurance. We have to take it as a gift and pray for our health and pray for those around us, take care of each other, love each other, and love our neighbor as we would our own. Celebrating America, our performance by Carol Gocher, a part of so many amazing musical groups that bring the sounds of every season to the Upper Cumberland. The Home of the Brave continues. That spirit of sacrifice for those who serve in America's military it happens when you make that decision to enlist. You know, I was really young, and I think just the virtues of courage, bravery, and, and wanting to be there for my, my fellow Americans. Matt Boyd served in Afghanistan. I think that's really what drove me at the beginning. Uh, later, the, those same virtues stayed with me, but, you know, a resounding reason to want to defend America, which I consider the greatest country on earth. I think that was really what, what drove it home and just kept me wanting to do it. Were there people that you looked up to in your life that had served? There were. I had my father who did three years in the army right out of high school in the 50s, from 55 to 58. And you know, that was, of course, everyone's dad. You know, you want to be like them, stuff like that. But also I had one of my dad's friends who later became one of my friends, still is my friend, uh, Mr. Joe Hinn, who retired as a Fulberg colonel. And he, he went to West Point and he used to play Army with me in the backyard. And you know, he was a good role model and somebody I looked up to and wanted to be just like him. When you got in 
What was the thing that surprised you the most? What surprised me the most at the time, you know, we were at war. We had been at war for nine years, a little over nine years at the time, by the time I actually became active duty. And what, what surprised me the most was just everyone's ability to stay focused, even though we had been at war for the longest in American history. You know, everyone was still motivated. Everybody was still ready to take the fight to the enemies of the United States. And that was a good surprise. When I first got there, first thing I found was, wow, this is a high altitude. (laughs) (laughs) Different than you expected. A lot different. Even though Fort Campbell, you know, it's not low at altitude. Definitely not like Louisiana where I'm from where it's at sea level. (laughs) Trying to carry all your bags and stuff and realize, wow, I'm in pretty good shape, but it it is tough. But, you know, ended up going to an area that that was very rural um, on the Pakistan border. And so I guess the first ex- actual experience uh, of the war that we were in was meeting with the locals and realizing that they had seen Americans for almost 10 years. You know, I wasn't any different than any other American that they had seen, so I really had to do something different if I wanted to get different results. They, in those rural areas, you know, it's different all around that country. It's not a unified country. So you know, the area I was in, which was Paktika, um, in the, the very east, right on the, the mountains bordering Pakistan, you know, they're they're very traditional. They are Waziri Pashtuns, which is a very different culture than we could even imagine. And it's a different culture for Afghanistan, a very localized culture. And they really just wanted to be left alone and do, do the things that they had been doing for thousands of years. I had to figure out a way to conduct the mission that we were set there to do, which was a counterinsurgency above all. You know, part of a counterinsurgency is to defeat the, the enemy in direct combat, but it's also to build the local local population governments, governance and the civilians, build their local police force and their, their border patrol force to be able to conduct operations unilaterally and not, not need us. Uh, so very tough mission to do if no one wants you there. So having to figure out how to motivate them and communicate to them in a way that they receive that and wanted to actually have you there and do things, even at a minimal level, was, was tough. And I, I, was, I was excited for that challenge. That was like the peak of my life at the time. You know, that's, that's what I had been training for and wanting to do for forever. Uh, even in high school sports, you know, sports, I was never had the goal to play sports at college. I had, had one goal. And that was to do what my country needed me to do. So, so that motivation, and then of course the motivation of the brotherhood of the, of the people that you're there for. You know, it, fighting a counterinsurgency isn't like World War II or, or some of the bigger wars where it's a direct conflict with a an identifiable enemy that's owned by another government. It's it's not heavy on the combat side. It's it's heavier on the on figuring out how to motivate people. So. Being the leader that I had to be, if I wasn't motivated, then I couldn't motivate it. The soldiers I was in charge of, and if that didn't happen, then, you know, the, the mission would be a failure. So I think that was my biggest motivation was soldiers. When it was over and you came home, how did it change you? I didn't realize how much it changed me, honestly. I thought I was the same person that that I was whenever I left. I found out through time that I was not. I was 
Yeah, I, I was in some pretty austere environments over there, not just at the beginning. About half of the deployment, I was operating out of FOB Boris, which is in Burmel, which is a, a company-sized FOB, a Ford operating base, what that stands for. And it was, like I said, it was in a pretty rural spot, but it, it had some comforts. We had some hot water and showers. We ran out of water and didn't have those for a while, but... Yeah, for the most part, we had a little comfort, and we had some TVs, internet, stuff like that. And then the other half of the deployment, um, we we moved down to the south because it was during the surge of troops during the Obama administration. At 2010, we really surged in there. And so we moved down to the south in Kandahar and actually invaded a a section um, called the Horn of Panjway that hadn't been touched by coalition forces for several years. That was very austere. Uh, we were living out of the the mud huts, local mud huts stuff, and we had zero comforts. We we're living out of our our backpacks and whatever resupplies we could get. And uh, so I think that those those experiences, plus the you know the natural experiences of combat, losing people and 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 seeing people uh, be killed and kill. Uh, I didn't realize how much it affected me, but it it sincerely did affect me. It, in a way that I, I was just more angry and didn't, in the last few years, I was able to, to realize that and start to heal from that. This is Cumberland County Mayor Alan Foster. Freedom means that we all have the opportunity to pursue our version of the American dream. This is Dale Reagan, Clay County Mayor. And freedom means to me that we have the right to enjoy the things that we enjoy in this life, and especially in this country that we, we're so blessed with. So uh, on this 4th of July, Independence Day, I encourage everyone to continue to give thanks to our Heavenly Father and for all the men and women that have fought and are still fighting for us to enjoy the freedoms that we have. And never let us forget that if we ever forget that we're one nation under God, will be one nation gone under. This is White County Executive Denny Wayne Robinson. Independence Day is a day for us to all celebrate the freedoms that we all cherish that makes this country great. Have a happy 4th of July. This is Jimmy Johnson, Pinterest County Executive. Independence Day is a day for celebrating our freedom and in honor of those who have fought and have died to give us the privilege to be free America. This is Randy Yeti, Jackson County Mayor. Independence Day is a day for celebration celebrating what our forefathers done for us to give us the independence that we have to live in the greatest country in the world, the United States of America. You know, the freedom to be who God has created us to be. That's what Independence Day is for me. My name is Michael Keith. I am the Deputy Fire Chief for the Putnam County Fire Department. Pager Wrench originally went off. Uh, we had a report of a um, person trapped in the house so at that time I didn't realize anything had happened storm related wise so as I'm coming in you know I'm hearing on the radio things are happening and uh, more information is coming in and then obviously as I was pulling up you know and getting closer to the scene you start seeing debris and things like that so it starts setting in as to what's going on it was an eerie thing the the storm actually woke me up at the house um, with uh, the rain hitting the house sounded like uh, you're throwing handfuls of rocks at the house um, after that, it moved through pretty quickly. You know, the pager was activated. Uh, when I left the house, it was just an eerie quiet. There's nothing was moving. Everything was still. And um, 
as I was coming up on it in all of my years, it's nothing like anything I'd ever seen before. Um, it's something that you, you see on TV, you know, you don't see in your backyard um, four miles from your house. Everybody hit the ground running, and um, so the first part of slowing down was probably about daylight, um, starting to break daylight there. We, uh, we started gathering uh, personnel um, putting them together, setting up a command post, triage area, things like that. And um, so it became a little more organized there a little bit before daylight. When the daylight hits, you just see farther. When we first pull up on scene, you don't see anything. Um, all the power's out, there's no street lights, anything. You're seeing everything from a flashlight and headlights on your vehicle. And um, once that daylight hit and uh, everything brightened up then you could you could truly see the devastation it was just unbelievable and now houses are gone the store is gone businesses are damaged it's uh just a horrific sight to, to be seen that night that morning the experience of helplessness almost um you're hearing people holler for help hollering for loved ones um you're trying to talk to people and um they're just excited and you just basically um have to get a hold of their emotions to ask are you hurt is anyone else hurt do you know where this person or that person is and um just the sounds of the night of everything going on is uh it's just something, it's just a, it was an experience I haven't, haven't dealt with before. I've been in the fire service for 35 years, and this is the most horrific thing that I have ever seen. Um, you know, talking with other people, um, the most horrific things that they have ever seen. And uh, just dealing with the helplessness and things, and it's just, um, from my experience, it's been something else to, to comprehend and move forward with and from. You know, just everything that happened. Consider the swath of destruction caused by the tornado. Then consider the storm that roared through White, Warren, DeKalb, Van Buren, and Cumberland County four weeks later, at the end of March. It was a stressful time to be sure, especially for the men and women who work in wet, rain, and wind. When structures are broken and snapped, trying to restore that most vital of resources, the power, the men of Upper Cumberland Electric. My name's Jason Moss. I come, I come up Tennessee Avenue and when I got to the red light, I seen just wire and poles laying on the ground. Of course, it was dark, no lights were on, and I thought, oh, this is gonna be a long night, you know. And yeah, it was. I, when I pulled in the parking lot, I could see something laying on the roof of the building. And I walked up front and I started seeing glass laying in the hallway here and I thought, oh no, this is awful, you know, it's a disaster. So that's when I called James and he was on, he was almost here, but we had trouble finding ways to get in because there was so much debris on the road. People were parking over here off of Jackson Street and walking in. I mean, it was, there just wasn't very many opportunities to get into, to, there was debris all over the parking lot. Uh, 
I just got a brand new work truck, a nice new work truck, and it, there was, the back window was busted out of it. There was a piece of roof laying in it, and it was scratched all the pieces. Uh, it hurt my feelings. <laughs> my name is Josh Moss. They told us to come in and said office was tore all to pieces, and we had to find alternate way. I live where straight up 70. I live at Gentry, and it passed the tornado actually at a zero, passed about uh, 250 yards from my house. So we kind of heard it go through. Figured we had damage, but didn't know for sure. Come in and just standing out here, especially as it started somewhat breaking daylight, you could see just the buildings gone in the distance and just looked like horrible conditions. And we, I knew it was a lot worse than normal storms that we'd come into. So we cleared roads first off and just for EMS mainly was our main priority. So as we did that, uh, just you just saw what actually was out there and what horrific things had happened to the people and whatnot. So my name is Zach Wilkin. I was driving into work. I saw all the debris and I knew that it was it was going to be a, a long week or two or three. It just blew my mind how how everything had changed. You know, it, driving down Highway 70, you just couldn't even recognize really where you were at because of the landmarks weren't there anymore. I grew up in Pippintown, what they call Pippintown, the Pippin community. And my buddies and I, you know, when we were kids, we would ride our bikes to Echo Valley Pool. We would meet up and ride our bikes to Echo Valley Pool. And just, I mean, you pass by these Echo Valley Market, We, my my parents used to buy gas there and shop there all the time. We knew the, the owners of Echo Valley Market and you know we all used to stop there in the mornings and grab a sandwich and uh, people's houses that you know you know just landmarks that have been there my entire life just gone and and it'll never be the same again and it, it breaks my heart it just it hurts me to see that there's nothing you can say to to make it any better you try to do your best but there's nothing you could say or do to make it any better they just lost everything it was awful to see it broke my heart what's kind of the first step in this process after something like this happens of trying to get power restored mm, first you got to kind of know what you got out we've got what we call breakers out of the substation we had several of those out and some were due to tva's destruction up here tower uh so uh we just started to have to analyze and see you know we've got this breaker out and that breaker out what we can do to you know to maybe isolate the problem that we've got and restore people up to that isolated point and uh, you just move from there and then from there it was so bad the engineers are running around and trying to just to to get assessment of what main poles the main feeds you know we needed to get up first and you know but like i said the first step of this was just trying to get where we could get the roads clear for the EMS and then we could, you know, we had enough stuff on the outskirts of the main damage to get other people on because it was so bad over here. There was no way we was getting anything on for, for a day or so here, you know. And so just kind of the first is the assessment, you know, and safety too, a lot of safety things, getting, you know, dangling stuff down, transformers hanging by things, you know. So, we, you know, that was that was the main priority for the first first 
day i'll say you know but that morning we did get a lot of customers on bias lightning you know getting the damaged part of the the worst damage i'll say you know get it isolated is the fatigue a factor oh yeah yeah i mean the as the the days progress you know you you work more than you rest so you don't recover from that not to mention you know the emotional because it was right here at home this isn't like somewhere we went to work and help somebody out this is right here at home so it it hits you pretty hard emotionally but you work more than you rest and you come home you still got it running through your mind so you you can't really lay down and rest very well and and as the days go on you know we start getting more stuff energized well this wasn't energized two days ago so we got to keep that in mind and things get a little more tricky as the process goes on you know and we get more public in here helping out which is great you know the volunteers were awesome but you got more obstacles that you need to deal with every day every day is a new challenge it presents a little something new that you have to deal with is there kind of a bond between those of you who do the work that you do and that you have other companies that come to your aid immediately to help in those situations you can't describe that bond. It, it's definitely there. I mean, there's a there's a bond amongst every line worker here. We had so many people come and feed us and do different things and just help us in any way they could because they know that you know we've got to be out there to to get the power on and and it's just it's really good. We got a good community and you know people say Cookville strong. Hey, it was Putnam County strong. Cookville strong. Uh, a lot of good good volunteers and people from other things not just linemen you know coming and help it took took everybody you know is there a sense of pride as the lights start coming back on absolutely anytime you can stand back and see your work it's you know with with any line of work i, I believe that's true that uh, you stand back and you look at uh, the things you've accomplished together as a team and and it is. It it puts a smile on your face, and you see the community. They're they're happy to get their lights back, and happy to to have that sense of normalcy back. You know, it it does. It makes you smile. To me, one of the more amazing parts of of the whole storm was I, I remember on one of the first days that the mayor stood up and said, you know, it it could be weeks before electricity is restored in that corridor. And best I remember that. In that week, you had power back to everybody. Uh, is that just luck? Is that determination? Is that uh, a combination of all of that that you were able to do that? Yeah, it is a combination of everything. I mean, when things go right, you get lucky. And, and of course, we had a lot of excellent help coming here from, from other co-ops and, and other places. And, man, it just all everybody all come together. They've done their job, worked together. I mean, it's organized chaos if you if that describes it you can't imagine trying to organize chaos and that comes from the top down i mean not not just us but your ems workers your your police officers your fire i mean uh, to orchestrate something of that size that quickly it's a it's a sight to behold it's something to see yes there's lots of awful things that you remember and and there's lots of good things that you remember, you know, the the things that you see, people helping each other uh, really stands out to me. To, uh, you know, you you just never lose hope in humans when you when you see those kinds of things uh, helping each other. 
personally didn't lose anything and these people lost everything so it's just hard to see that and and it gives you the motivation to to do what you need to do for days on end and uh, you know just just a life-changing event really to be honest just something you'll never forget you know the things we saw and you know especially being out there kind of first whatnot so with the EMS and all them so It'll leave you speechless to see all those volunteers walking down the road. Just, just, I mean, they give up, they give up their time. They, they took off their jobs. They just, they, they give up days out of not, not just one or two. I mean, days out of their lives to come in here and help these people who have lost everything. I mean, they, they didn't have anything left, and just to help them clean up and try to get back to a little bit of normalcy you know I mean when you've had your whole life turned upside down a little bit of normalcy I think is everything and, and it just it was amazing to me to see all those volunteers and the way our community pulled together that just that, that says a lot it'll it'll leave you speechless Ask anyone who witnessed Upper Cumberland life over the last four months. Tell me a story that has inspired you. And here's betting that you hear all those kids who were fed during the COVID outbreak. Those cafeteria workers who made that happen. Selfless, giving, helping others. The cafeteria workers of the Upper Cumberland. My name is Linda Robertson. Jennifer Mitchell. My name is Crystal Reeves. So the word comes down that schools are going to close and that we're going to provide meals for all the kids. What goes through your mind at that particular moment? How are we going to do it? And uh, will we have enough staff, you know, that are, that are you know, willing to, to, uh, to stick with us and do this? Uh, but also this was, uh, I was, that was my first day. Of it was your first day of working with put with uh, Putnam County Schools. <laughs> it was March twenty third. I'll never forget it. <laughs> your first day. Yes. Yes. And this is what gets thrown in your right. lap. And so they had it already planned out. And w- what to do? They knew what to do. What's the challenge that none of us in the outside world understand? How you get fifty meals in a cooler when only ten fit? <laughs> <laughs> How do you do that? Oh, with a lot of coolers. <laughs> we prepackaged a lot of things and kind of got on the buses and put it together on the bus as we handed it out to the kids. And it was a good challenge, but everybody stepped up to the plate and we did what we had to do and fed a lot of kids. We were doing 500 meals. Well, we were doing breakfast and lunch, so that was 1,000 meals a day. Well, we were delivering Mondays and Tuesdays, so that was 2,000 meals. We were trying to get it into two different buses. We did it, but it was... It was hard work, right? And and lifting those coolers uh-huh. onto the buses was a big challenge. Uh, keeping them in temp is is, yes. is always a big challenge. Yes. I mean, there's just no question they were going to do it, and uh, I mean, they do they do it they do it well. And it was well worth it too, you know, because I rode some of the buses that we went on, and the kids were just jumping up, trying to get in line and hurry and chasing each other, trying to get it there first, and um, the smile was worth it. The pictures that we got, I mean, we received so many pictures and thank you cards and little 
paintings mm-hmm. that the kids give us all the time on the buses, and they would be excited to be waiting on that bus every day. And if we was late, they would call the office saying, where's our bus at today? <laughs> How many meals did you serve? Over, I think it was over 400,000 meals. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Even some of the parents saying they didn't know how they were going to feed their kids without us showing up every day. So it was definitely a heart-wrenching thing, but it's what we do every day, and we love our kids. And I did not have not one person back down. I love kids. That's why I do it. I've been doing this for 14 years, and I hope to retire in a couple years <laughs> from doing it. And But just the pure joy that knowing their kids are going to be fed. They, they put themselves out there at, and increase their risk of getting, you know, potentially getting the virus. Uh, that impresses me. The risk of the virus. Doctors on the front line fighting an enemy and trying to understand it. Enter Cookville Regionals, Dr. Rebecca Sprouse. Well, honestly, it's been a little bit surreal. Um, you know, we all tried to prepare ahead of time to see kind of what was coming. We had preparations for everything up to including, you know, multiple people on ventilators. We all thought a huge wave of, uh, you know, intubated patients were coming our way. We were prepared for taking an entire half of the ICU to more than half of the ICU and kind of closing it off, walling it off. And um, we had areas of the hospital prepared for groups of us to basically turn into living quarters. Um Lots of us had go bags basically in our cars in case we at some point in time just quit going home, had spouses and families prepared for at some point in time this may just get bad to the point where I just literally quit coming home kind of things. Um, I started going to a lot of extra meetings, ended up weaseling my way onto multiple task forces so that I could kind of keep a handle on what was going on so that I could relay back to my people, you know, what kinds of things we were we were looking at what's happening as far as, you know, PPE, what we had available, what we needed to prepare for, any extra things I needed to go out and get to make sure that all of my people were prepared for things that were coming in. Just a, a lot of just literally trying to keep a handle on on what's what's happening, what's coming. You know, you hear what's in the news, you see what's on Facebook, those kinds of things. But you never really know what's coming your direction. So we were trying to figure out what's happening and sitting in our own little corner of the country, think, trying to think ahead, trying to be prepared for everything. And fortunately, a lot of the things we were prepared for didn't actually happen. But you, we didn't know at the time. One of the, the words that you think of when you think of healthcare is knowledge. How difficult has it been that there is so much of this that we just don't know? Oh, it was incredibly difficult. I mean, thinking back on the first patient that we took care of, I was actually in an administrative task force meeting when I got the phone call that said, hey, we've got one that's coming to the ICU. And I was the doc in the ICU that day. We have one physician that's assigned to the ICU every day. So I looked up and looked around the, the administrative meeting and I said, <laughs> I've got to go. And they said, yeah, you, you've got to go. So I got up and left and I went down to the ICU and I got everything ready to go to intubate this patient that was coming to the ICU. And I thought for sure, based on everything that I'd been told, this person was going to be in distress. This was going to be a terrible situation. 
And he came by on the stretcher and looked up at me and said, hey, how are you? And there I was, you know, dressed up like a spaceman, ready to go with the, all the equipment I needed to, to take care of him. And I thought to myself, I guess I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> how are you? And they pushed him into the room and he got up off the stretcher and walked over and got onto the ICU bed. And we kind of all shrugged our shoulders like, well, geez, what do we do now? <laughs> this isn't anything like what we expected. This wasn't what was described in everything that we had read. So it was, it was not, it was not what we expected. And I spent the rest of that day about every 15 minutes going down and looking in the room. And the nurse is laughing at me because she was also looking in the room. And as time has gone on, um, we've gotten more information and all of the recommendations have completely turned on their heads. Um, what we were told to do with him is not anything close to what we're being told to do with patients that we're getting now. Um, the medication recommendations have all changed. You know, there's no standard of care because there's no standard. Nobody knows what what we're dealing with, honestly. And even now, you can you can find papers that completely contradict each other. There's we really honestly are still trying to figure out exactly what we're dealing with. So mostly, what we do is we take a look at patients and we try and do the best we can to treat symptoms and to to treat what we think is going on and we're getting better. I mean, we're, we're definitely, um, the mortality is, is much, much lower than we expected it to be. Um, but we still, we're used to having, you know, this is diabetes. This is what you do to treat diabetes. This is the pathophysiology of what's going on here. We know all this information. And in this case, we have none of that knowledge. So it's, it's a complicated situation, and, you know, as physicians, we like to understand what we're doing, and in this case, we just don't, which makes it very complicated, and we don't like it. I, I, I want to protect the people around me as much as I can, but, you know, we all have to, we all went to medical school, we all took an oath, we all have to, to take care of patients. As long as we have the equipment that we're supposed to have, we have to jump in there and take care of patients. Um, you know, pay, these people are sick. They deserve care. We all have to go in and do our part to take care of them. I do the best I can to make sure that everybody has all of the equipment that they need. And we all have had all of the equipment that we need. There's never been a point in time when I have felt like any of my people or any of the, the um, providers in the hospital, any of the nurses in the hospital, have had a shortage of equipment. I know there are places in the country where they have run short on protective equipment. We really haven't. Kind of the motto in the ICU is if the patient needs it, the patient should get it. These people are sick. Um, they should get whatever they need to get better. And as time has gone on, we've, we've felt even more that way. You know, they're, they preach against certain nebulizers for, for patients. But if a nebulizer means the difference between a patient getting better and a patient not getting better, as long as you have all of the equipment that you need, there's a core group of us that feels like We'll put on the equipment and we'll go provide those nebulizers if that's what the patient needs. It's, it's turned into, as time has gone on, more of a, a, a duty to provide whatever, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. The medical team at Signature Healthcare Allgood understood. More than anyone in the region, they came face to face with just how quickly COVID-19 can turn from a nebulous threat to a deadly reality. April 2nd, 
28 patients, 16 staff, testing positive. We got a phone call on one of our patients there that her test results had come back positive um, March the 27th, and that was the day that our lives changed dramatically at the facility. Signatures, Heather Hammock. It's very scary and frightening because it's so new to the world um, and how to deal with it and how to manage it, but I think our team responded greatly and pulled together to try to give our patients the best possible outcomes. You didn't really think it was going to apply to our facility, our, our small town, as much and affect us as much as it did. It just seemed to be something kind of on the news with um, being able to follow the updates in the world at the time, but then it hit our building and it hit it pretty hard. It made you realize how impactful something could be that you just thought was out there that hopefully it wasn't going to affect us at all, and then here it is in our back door. Respiratory therapist Brent Heron. With it having the contractility that it did that there was going to be more cases. So we, we knew we knew that. And then at that point, we did the mass testing, and then we resulted out and found out where we were at as far as with employees and also patients. Because at that time, you know, we really had no idea who was affected. I mean, anybody could have it. A lot of our patients that had it and employees also were asymptomatic. They had no symptoms, no temperature, no cough, no, no runny nose, nothing to, to indicate that they were sick at all. Um, so when we did get the test results back, it was interesting to find out who was positive and who was, who was negative, of course. Um, we had a couple of situations with some folks that work there where, you know, they come back positive and that took them out of the, of the gamut of things to help to be able to, to do certain things. So people had to step up into different roles that they weren't really accustomed to and we had to all band together. We had to try to isolate patients with symptoms um, in a way that would keep them from being in contact with other stakeholders and with other patients. Um, we flipped a unit, um, our, our uh, downstairs unit that we had, with a lot of help. Um, some midnight nights was pulled there, but um, brought a COVID unit to the facility there very quickly and got our patients moved down to that unit and set up the isolation in the way that we did to try to keep it as contained as possible. It wasn't when the original patient first tested positive, I don't think, that it hit me the hardest. It was once we was set up on the isolation unit and once the acuity level of the patients increased to the extent that it did, that you kind of just got that overwhelming. It, that first month we was down there, you almost felt defeated going in, even when they were stable because you didn't know what was coming next. Like my 11 years of my nursing experience is what I carry into work with me every day to know how to address situations and this was something we haven't ever experienced before. So it made it very difficult to know what was coming and how to take the next steps. Um, so even when they were stable, they were so scared, the patients themselves, that they just needed that extra human contact beside them. So the acuity level increased in that aspect as well. And you just, you, there was always something that seemed like was, was hanging over you and kind of looming that was very important that you needed to do to make the outcomes as good as we did. In the past, I had had some experience with uh, swine flu and bird flu and the SARS viruses. Um, 
they were this was different as far as the amount of people that it affected um one thing that was concerning to me is one day your patient would be okay and then 24 hours later you would have a different patient um so you would go home at the end of your shift and you would wonder is everybody going to be okay when i come back in in the morning and then you get there and you find out that 90 percent of them are okay and then you've got one that you're really concerned about on that particular day um it could change in the middle of the day um we had patient conditions that would change in two to three hours i mean they would be perfectly fine at eight o'clock in the morning by lunchtime you were looking at a different procedure that you were going to do you know how easy was the virus to pick up for ourselves? um where are we going to be taking it to when we go home from work what precautions do we need to carry home with us to keep from infecting our family is it safe to stay home with your family is it safe to interact with your family is it um Am I taking anything into the public if I go to the grocery store, to the gas pumps? Um, All of those things are in the back of your mind while you know you're going to work every day to do a job and provide care for someone. Oftentimes when we go to school and we are educated and we go through the programs and stuff, we know there's always a possibility, but we never think it'll affect us. Not in the numerical amount in which it did at the facility, I think. We've had, of course, patients that we take care of that are very acutely ill there. Um, I feel that we have very clinically strong staff that's able to do that, but the overwhelming amount of a number and, and the amount of people that it took to adapt to the acuity level for the change, it, you you just don't think about how overwhelming that that can be to, to adapt to. These were patients who were separated from their families. But are you even more having to be that support system? Absolutely. We not only were caregivers, we were family members. And I mean, these patients are family members of ours anyways, as they come into our facility and we spend time with them. Um, But they had no other outside interaction with anyone other than the folks that were coming in and in the suits and the masks and things like that. And reassuring them and being there for them was a huge part of the role that we had to play. Um, we were the only folks they were seeing. Um, there were many patients that, you know, we that had family that wanted to come in and see them and things, and we were able to set up some online visitations and things as we got into it. But for the initial uh, two weeks, Heather, I would say probably a lot of them weren't able to do have any interaction with family members whatsoever. So we we served in that role as well as the caregiver. I mean, as far as the making the decisions and helping to to keep them as calm as we could um, while still letting their family know what was going on with their health condition. They had no one but us, so the responsibility that came with being their their sole person that was in their life at that time made it so much more overpowering to us I, I believe just because not only was you their nurse or whatever they needed at that moment you was their person that they had you was their family so it just made the staff feel that much more responsible in doing the best care I think that they could at the same time that you're worried about your you family right. yes sir and your care what's your what you're placing your family in. I didn't I didn't get to see my niece for almost two months just because you want to try to be as precautionary. And, of course, my children, I have three children, um, to come home in the evening and your little girl, five years old, knows that 
you have to go to the shower and you have to do your cleaning and things, your precautions behind you and her crying because she can't touch you yet and just kind of getting her acclimated to that. It just, it just makes it extremely difficult for, for all the staff. We had some staff members, families that, um, of course, a lot of resentment was given to them because they was willing to provide that. There was not even a question. The team that was on the, on the COVID unit itself, they, they didn't bat an eye and they didn't question it at all. They jumped in, they helped, um, even through the repercussions that the community was giving them, um, their family members getting th- their jobs threatened, being threatened at grocery stores and gas stations, just don't get in here, don't be around me, leave, just those type of behaviors that was thrown at them, and they persevered through it all. And then you want to look back and the ones that we did lose, what could I have done differently? What could we have done differently? What what choices could we have made that would have had a different outcome? Um we rejoice in the ones that recovered. We had a huge number of patients that recovered. But there's always the sense of relief to say that the final one has tested negative and it's no longer in our building. Absolutely, there was a sense of relief. Children's Choir of Life Church, Livingston, Sparta, and Cookville, under the direction of Zach Buckner, as we celebrate Independence Day. The home of the brave continues. Remembering the selfless spirit of our forefathers, the words resonate in this document, as read by the Upper Cumberland's county leaders. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. And to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. And to institute new government, 
laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our attention. Do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they be absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce. And to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I was drafted out of high school in 1951. I had to go into the service, and so I volunteered for the Marines. Korean veteran Gene Puckett. Uh, we landed in Korea, I think it was spring of 1952. First Marines, second battalion, and I was trained as a weapons company. And uh, whenever they put me in combat at the front line, they put me in heavy machine guns. And then I stayed with the infantry with uh, machine guns for about seven months, and they transferred me to heavy artillery. But whenever we got up to the front, I mean, the stench of the uh, bodies and uh, bones of people laying around and the stench of rotting bodies and all of that, we got to the front line. So they were short of men. They just come off the... Uh, a battle at uh, the Frozen Reservoir, they called it. And, uh, of course, they, we, we landed there as Green Marines. We didn't know what was going on. But we relieved a few of the old Marines. And they looked like wild men. They couldn't shave, they couldn't wash or do anything. But we was escorted up to the front and joined their outfit. And I was put as a head machine gunner with my squad. I joined them on the 38th parallel, living in bunkers and holes in the ground. And the weather was devastating. We liked to froze no matter what we had. We had, <laughs> we had bundles and bundles of clothes, cold weather clothes, but you still got cold. Your weapons would freeze up. They come out with orders to put you in uh, the job you was trained to do. And so I was trained on machine guns, but that, that wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to be in heavy artillery. And uh, just a few days after I was transferred back, that was orders, uh, my machine gun went on patrol, and, and as far as I know, the lieutenant, the sergeant, uh, the whole squad was wiped out. That's the only information I got. I never heard from none of the uh, my squad again. Never have, and my uh, machine gun squad was gone. Never did find out whether there was any survivors or not. I don't think so. 
But the thing of it is, for some lucky deal, I was was saved from my squad. As far as I know, I was the only one. So we were already on shift. We had started at 7 p.m. the night before, um, and we were in the middle of our 12-hour shift that night. So at 1.48, all of our Apple watches went off with a tornado warning. And then only 20 minutes later at 2.08 in the morning, the EMS captain called and said that a tornado had touched down, that West Broad Street was gone, and to get all hands on deck. Jessica Hoot, on duty, March 3rd, Cookville Regional ER Coordinator. It was obviously 2 o'clock in the morning. The hospital was full. We already didn't have enough staff for the patients we had. And I didn't know how on earth I was going to get enough people in in the middle of the night to come help out with all these patients and not knowing how many potentially hundreds and hundreds of patients it could have been. So the floor nurses came down. They took those patients upstairs without any questions. They were phenomenal at helping us get them out, make room for the incoming patients. Obviously, it's the middle of the night, it's dark, it's raining, we have no idea what's all coming in. Um, so you just do the best you can. Uh, you try and um, triage them appropriately. We set up a whole different area, even in the east lobby, we had one of our HR employees kind of running that with the nurse over there. So everyone stepped up above their roles to really take care of the community. We have a little tracker where we can see the EMS board <clears throat> as the calls go out, and it just started stacking up. I think once I looked and there were 60 different EMS calls pending, um, but you don't know how many of those are hurt or potentially you know, have lost their lives already at that point, so you just really have no idea. And that's the hard part about it. I kept turning to one of my nurses next to me and kept saying, this is a dream, right? I'm about to wake up and come to work. It just is so surreal. We do so much training and planning for events like this. Um, and honestly, the disaster went so much more smoothly than we could have ever imagined. We do all these drills and you think, you know, oh, that's good to know, but you never really think it'll happen to you. And actually in the moment it went so much better than we could have ever imagined. I believe we got close to 100 patients in less than four hours and again through a 36-bed ER. Everyone did so phenomenal. I mean absolutely fantastic. They really stepped up. We had OBGYN doctors suturing. We had a cardiologist out in the parking lot being our triage doctor so everyone really went above and beyond so it was really hard <laughs> because the very first patient that rolled through the door was one of our own ER nurses and his wife and actually one of the nurses working for us she found out her home was hit while she was working but I think it's just part of being in the medical field you can transition so easily to hiding your emotions and just doing what we're trained to do I mean that's why we work in emergency medicine we're this is what we trained for and planned for, and you just go to work. It's just second nature. So, uh, I was the anesthesia person on call. 
Cookville Regionals, Larry Epps. And being an anesthesia provider, uh, we, we're involved, uh, we get involved with resuscitations a lot, so uh, I, I had the opportunity to help try to take care of, of uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that were really hurt a lot. But I've never seen this much at one point in time and seen the misery, uh, abject misery, all in, in the hallway, in each room, Every room filled up. Uh, no, so that that's 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 the heart. That's hard to see all that at one time. That's uh, so. Yes, the hospital was trained, and I was I was so 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 very proud uh, because uh, as you know, I just I'm a community person, and to see the way the hospital reacted to it was exactly how it should have happened. You go to, you go to each situation, and you, uh, you you focus on what you have to do. It, it, it's interesting in in healthcare, and particularly in anesthesia, uh, you you just you you basically detach from uh, the uh, uh, the emotion of people. Uh, you focus on the task at hand. I'm sure in radio you have the same thing. Uh, where you just have to, you need, I've got to get this job done, and so that's that's how we, how you do it. You focus on you see the you see the problem, and this is what I have to fix, and so that's what you do. Lewis Wilson, our heart surgeon, he must have put in. I I know he put in at least three chest tubes. Just uh, Stacy Brewington, uh, a cardiac a cardiac cardiologist. Uh, he was a tr- he was doing triage. He told me, he said, I'm not a, I don't do triage. I take care of people with heart, heart disease. But he was doing triage. Uh, I saw Scott Lamb, who's a, a PA. Uh, uh, he, was, he was so, an orthopedic PA, physician's assistant. He was, he was sewing up people's, you know, lacerations and cuts and things like that. Just going to wherever, wherever he needed to go. came in and it was a, uh, a young child that's pretty jacked up and I was a little worried because they had a lot of they had facial fractures and uh, and I was called in to uh, the, the patient was have trouble breathing and I was called in to uh, to support that and what we do is we place a endotracheal tube we place we place that into their trachea into their windpipe a young child, and uh, the father's uh, over in the corner, and he's uh, he's crying. And there's uh, there's all kinds of staff around, starting IVs and doing all kinds of stuff. It's resuscitation. One nurse was holding this child's hand and was in his ear. I'm focusing in on what I've got to do. I've got to do this. We've got to get this done. We want to save this kid's life. And she's just in that hold his hand. And she's just telling him, she's just sitting there being, it's going to be okay. You're going to be just fine. We're here. We're going to take care of you. She didn't do anything else. Usually everybody has like a specific job to do, like starting IVs or doing this or doing that, etc. Somebody at our hospital, I don't, and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't, I don't remember who the nurse was, 
but she was holding that little little person's hand and saying it's going to be okay you're going to be okay and I, as far as i know I th- the child did okay he was he or she i don't even know if it was a boy or girl <laughs> they were pretty beat up for me that capsule that that puts it all in one uh yeah kind of one story for me There are so many amazing stories of people just doing what needed to be done over these past several months. Remember, just weeks after the March 3rd tornado, March 30th, another wind event hit the area, causing extensive tree damage in the southern corridor. Since then, one man has been cleaning up. My name is Alan Kennard. I work for the city of Sparta. I've hauled 100, as of yesterday, 163 loads. Uh, by myself, uh, all going to our rock quarry up here. They're going to burn it. Uh, the county took stuff up there too, and I've had to work sometimes on Saturdays and uh, got paid a little overtime there. Uh, done done good, and um, I've done this as uh, one man and one truck for about three months. I come in in the mornings. Um, I know people calls in places to do this, and um, I go pick it up. And um, I've got a good boss, D.C. Basile, and uh, Dillard Quick of the Public Works. Uh, we all sort of work together, and I really like uh, doing my job. Cindy Putman, I'm the Ready to Learn Project Manager for Putnam County Schools. I'm Jackie Reynolds. I'm the Family Engagement Coordinator for Putnam County Schools. Melanie Bussell, Coordinated School Health Supervisor, Student Services Department. Our team was asked, could we go to Church on the Hill to help families um, look at pictures, identify families, and be there to support the families that had been affected directly by the by the storm. We also helped the families that needed housing. Um, we were able to assist them in getting motel rooms until something was more set up. We made sure they had food. I think one of the most interesting things is they compiled this master list that we had at central office from all the principals and the counselors from all the schools that had been affected with the names of the students and their address where the tornado, you know, had actually occurred and then where they were. And there was a numerous a group of people that continually call them to make sure that they had what they needed, to make sure that they had all the adequate, because that's what student services does. They take care of kids all year long, and this was a crisis situation, but student services is always feeding the kids and making sure there's adequate housing and that they have the things that they actually need. So it was just really stepping it up a couple of notches to do it in a different environment, but we were still meeting the needs of the students that really needed it the most. And when we returned to school, um, counselors from other areas all over the Upper Cumberland came in. We had 20-plus counselors that came in to schools to have run groups with the kids that were affected, the schools that were most affected. Um, they had small group sessions and one-on-one. We provided sessions for faculty and staff that had been affected. Um, so the whole community, the Upper Cumberland region, came together to help us during this crisis in the school system. We watched it all unfold in the EOC, and you would think, oh, this is the one that we're not going to be able to help. or what? But the resource list that we had, we were receiving 
5,000 emails a day with people wanting to help, the volunteers that were lined up. There was a spreadsheet that was tabbed out by service. If you needed therapy, if you needed a backhoe, if you needed the, the community, if you said we need it, they found a way to make it happen. Dylan Wood. I'm the youth minister over at Double Springs Church of Christ and uh, at the church at Double Springs we've been doing as much as we can and and that was just that's kind of when it began you know 2 30 that morning my phone rang and I think I went to bed at one or two o'clock the next morning after that so we've been going as hard as we can since then you know started our distribution center we had the Churches of Christ disaster relief was there the following morning on Wednesday and they unloaded a truck and from them we just you know operated with um, financial uh, assistance to anybody that needed it from the storm standpoint and um, uh, material things stuff that you take advantage or take for granted clothes and cleaning supplies and and a warm meal I mean we had disaster groups from all over the country showing up in our parking lot cooking and so that was our main focus was financial assistance and and praying with people and giving them a hug and basically whatever they needed if they needed a shoulder to cry on we were there and it was hard but that's what that was our main focus and it still is today Joseph Roberts. We started mobilizing equipment um, by daybreak uh, the morning after the tornado. And um, we started working with the local authorities doing some search and rescue. After the search and rescue was over with, we proceeded to start with the cleanup for the people, uh, helping clean up their properties, which we're still doing today. Uh, we've been out in the community just meeting the people, seeing what they need, how we can help. Uh, it's just great to see all the people that has really came out and and banded together to help each other. It's a selfless community that we live in. Kevin Tucker has been one of the leaders of Putnam County's volunteer efforts. 7,500 volunteers, 57,000 hours of time spent by volunteers. The day after the tornado hits, there's uh, a gathering at the old Hobby Lobby store on Jefferson. I was there along with what I perceived to be about 4,500 to 5,000 people. Everyone wanted to help. Going into the community and giving hugs and praying, uh, engaging them in conversation, talking about hope, and, and I think that's what most of them were looking for was some kind of, of hope. And as a result, the the volunteers that did go into the community, God just graced them to let them know what to do, how to do it, and it worked. The morning, that Wednesday morning when there were so many people there, and they called and said, hey, there's about a thousand volunteers coming to the church today, and I, was, I just couldn't believe it. And we actually, the entire Tennessee Tech football team, basketball team, all these athletes were there, and they formed a chain from the 18-wheeler load of stuff that would normally have taken hours to unload. They unloaded it in 25 minutes, and they were just, I mean, it was insane. And I got to go to Mississippi to respond to another storm uh, shortly after that, and seeing how many volunteers they had versus the volunteer state of Tennessee it was amazing. I mean, I just can't, I can't put it into words at how phenomenal the volunteer effort was. The, uh, the first couple of weekends before COVID-19 hit, we processed about 500 volunteers uh, over a Saturday and a Sunday. And, and seeing that effort take place, the camaraderie of, of everyone, 
uh, was amazing. It didn't matter who you was or where you was. Everyone was banding together to help. Um, God just put everybody in the right place at the right time, and it really worked out nicely to be able to touch as many people as we did. Um, We were overwhelmed with people coming out. I mean, it was an amazing experience. Did the experience change you? 100%. 100% it changed me. Um, You don't realize how much people are willing to help and how how closely strangers can come together in a time like this. Uh, It changes your whole outlook on your whole community. I knew we lived in a great place, but this was just solid proof of how great our community really is. So many people that that volunteered, not just hours, but resources that we had to have, meant everything for us to continue our effort. The volunteer organization had just organized. We had no resources. We had no money. So we had to beg, borrow, cheat, and steal to do what we were able to do. Um, I'm going to tell you about Joseph. The mayor called me one day, and he said, uh, Joseph Roberts is volunteering to do all the heavy equipment operation for demolition, free, free of charge. I cannot tell you without his effort, without his equipment, we would have not accomplished what we have. It makes me realize no matter how bad a situation is, the power of people coming together, no matter their story, no matter, you know, where they've came from, no, just like you were saying, young, old, it doesn't matter. You know, we were all there for the same goal. We're still in it for the same goal. You know, I see people, you know, when I go out to eat on a Sunday or whatever, and I'll see them, and they just come up and hug me. And they say, you know, you have no idea what you've done. And I was like, no, you, you have no idea what you've done for me. And, you know, all these people, they say, you know, you've helped so much and your organization's helped so much. And, and Kevin and Joseph probably understand what I'm saying, but they've changed me more than they understand. And it makes me just hug people a little bit tighter and, and, and value what they do. This is Greg Wilson, Van Buren County Mayor. Independence Day is a day for, number one is, I think in my opinion, is thanks for the founders of our country that allows us the freedom to move about, the freedom of choice, the freedom of being able to speak our minds, say what we want to say. And it's one of those things that I feel when you look at other countries and what they have to live through, that we as Americans have the independence to be able to move about and make our own decisions for ourselves. This is DeKalb County Mayor Tim Stribling. Independence Day is a day for celebrating our nation's Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. Hope everyone has a happy and safe 4th of July. This is Overton County Executive Ben Danner. Independence Day is a day to remember that People gave their lives and fought so we can have freedom. This is Randy Porter, Putnam County Mayor. Independence Day is a day for celebration as we celebrate our freedoms that we enjoy in this great country we live in. 
Please don't ever take those for granted, as a lot of folks fought and died for those freedoms. Continue to enjoy our freedoms we have here in the good old United States of America, and have a happy Independence Day. Honoring those who fought, even through the COVID-19 restrictions, the local Veterans Honor Guards did not leave their post, making sure they served. Norm Osborne and Bill Speck of the Overton County Veterans Honor Guard. You know, the, uh, a military funeral is like the last thing you can do for a veteran uh, uh, to acknowledge him. And uh, no, we, we just kept on going. Uh, some of the funeral homes decided they didn't want to do a, a traditional wake in the building, so they would do it out at the cemetery. So everything would be done at the cemetery. Sometimes it almost gets emotional. Because, uh, yeah, we might not know them, but they're our fellow veterans. I'll be 79 in a couple of days, and I'll keep doing this as long as I can walk. It means that much. America's selfless nature, giving of yourself to better the whole, putting others' needs ahead of your own, letting your actions speak for who you really are. Our community has seen it every single day since March 3rd. Seen it from truckers like John Shelton. Well, I'm out there on the road 24 hours a day, uh, basically about six days a week. Basically what we are, we, we have to move that freight to keep things rolling. Uh, actually, it was tough to find food sometimes because uh, uh, restaurant workers weren't allowed to come in and um, food products weren't allowed to go out. But uh, we uh, did the best we could to find out what we could uh, eat and where we could eat at. Educators like Hillham Principal Kim Dillon. A lot of the teachers were constantly calling and asking us, what about so-and-so? How is How are they doing? Have you heard from them? You know, if they weren't getting any kind of response from a parent or a student within that week, because the goal was to talk to every child that you have on a daily basis every week. So if there was a time that they weren't getting a response, they were calling us. You know, they're very concerned. We're not trying to harass you. We just want to know. The teachers want to know that these kids are okay. And it, it was extremely hard for them. Teachers and staff at Rickman Elementary School. My name is Donna Ray. Two of our teachers that went around, it was Easter time, and they went around and delivered care packages to each one of their children. They just dropped them in the mailbox that had a little note for them, and it had a pack of peeps. And on the package, it said, we love you and we miss our peeps. So that was one thing that they were able to do just to make con a connection with them. And um, the days that we volunteered to help hand out food, and it was just through the pickup line, they were expected to see the, the cafeteria ladies. And they came through and the excitement on their face, Miss Ray, you're here. Mm -hmm. And it was the it was just the most fulfilling thing for me to be able to see them and know that everybody's okay. It was just a really, really good experience. Like I said, I think it filled us more than it fulfilled yeah. them. Selfless spirit from bus drivers. Mark Kingsley, when we pulled in that parking lot that morning and the amount of people that were ready to go. And we couldn't fill our back. Our buses were full within seconds. And you were running. And uh, I mean, it was just amazing about the volunteers that were there. You dropped them off, they were running. So it was quite incredible. 
Mark Rogers. If there was ever a demonstration of why we're the volunteer state, that was it. From first responders. My name is Joe Smith with Putnam County EMS. Uh, one of the first initial people that I encountered was actually trapped under uh, a load-bearing wall of a house. And I went over and thought that, hey, maybe I can lift this up enough to maybe her scoot out. And it, and it wouldn't budge. And I, I didn't know what her state was. I didn't know how hurt she was because I, I couldn't even get to her. She was so far under the wall. So there was people everywhere that had just lost their homes, people coming out of their homes that were still standing to help people. Um, so I rallied together several, several people um, trying to get this wall off of her, and we got a few chainsaws over there, and, and we were finally able to free her. And, and I don't think she might have had a few minor injuries, but I don't even think that she was uh, transported to the hospital. So... A lot, a lot of people were, were there, um, whether they were responders of some kind or just lived in the neighborhood, um, they were all coming to help. From the veterans who served. I wish more people understood what people went through. Vietnam veteran Ron Romy. In the unit I was in, it went back to World War II. My father was a Battle of the Bulge and my uncle were Battle of the Bulls veterans. We owed them something. They put out a heck of a lot more than I did. And you know, you look back to the uh, Valley Forge and so forth, what, what these guys went through. And that was part of what kept us going to, being in a unit that had done so much in World War II, made us strive to be better. And I really wish that the citizenry would uh, somehow find a way to pull together more. Uh, 911 was a terrible day, but look what it did to our country. It brought everybody together.
Sparta's Regina Pullum. Every holler, every street, every hill and valley, every part of the Upper Cumberland has shown the true spirit of America during these most difficult four months. They have shown this to be the home of the brave. Thanks for being with us. The Home of the Brave, an exclusive presentation of Stonecon Radio.